Welcome to the Vanguard Church Podcast. You're about to hear a sermon from Vanguard Church Central in the heart of Colorado Springs. With every message, it's our prayer that you hear and learn how to live out your faith in real relationship with Jesus and with others. May your faith be strengthened, your hope increased, and your heart inspired to live for Jesus no matter the cost. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Welcome to the 9 a.m. at Vanguard. Uh, As Wendy alluded to, we have quite the scripture. Not only do we have four chapters, we've got four chapters of Ezekiel. So this, my friends, is a marathon that's going to feel like a sprint. But we're going to do it together in the name of the good Lord. Are you ready? I was thinking about, as I always do, um, I think about my students and they're like, Professor Kovac, introductions are the hardest, aren't they? They are. Like, you know, how do I set the, the table? Well, something came to mind actually just yesterday. And uh, in my quiet time with God, he brought it to my mind, which especially as we're talking about the way God speaks to us. Let me just remind you, when you have an idea that comes into your mind and it is out of your ordinary, I would encourage you strongly to consider if that's from the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to tell you what he told me by bringing it to mind. When I was uh, a littler girl, probably somewhere starting at 10 into my teen years, uh, I had what I could best describe as a little book club with my dad. Now, I'm a daddy's girl. I love my father. He has gone to be with the Lord uh, in 2010. So without him for a while, but present every day. Don't y'all relate to that? You know, if you've lost someone that you love. And I uh, had this memory come back through the Holy Spirit. And it was uh, Tom Clancy. Anybody read Tom Clancy? That's a very niche. Yes, got one in the house, two in the house. Uh, My dad was an old Navy man, and he loved Tom Clancy. And so uh, here I am reading, probably at maybe 13 at the time of this story. And I'm reading Tom Clancy because whatever time I could spend with him, I was going to take it. And there is an epigram at the beginning of the novel, The Sum of All Fears. It's also a movie, you know, never, ever, ever judge a book by the movie. Never truer for this one. But The Sum of All Fears, and it has um, a quote at the beginning, and I want to read it to you. It says, you take the most gallant sailor, okay, so gallant is just a fancy, elegant word for brave, okay, and then the most intrepid airman, Intrepid is a a risk taker. Or the most audacious soldier. And you put them at a table together. And what do you get? The sum of all their fears. The sum of all their fears. Even the the most brave, risk-taking, adventurous people who appear to have no fear at all at their base They're governed by fear. And so are you. And so am I. And here's the thing about fear. It appears in many different ways. And there's one way today that we're particularly going to look at it. And I'm going to call it a fear knot. K-N-O-T. Tie it like a knot. Tell me if you relate. In that moment, maybe start back in childhood, where you break the thing that you were never supposed to be touching... And then you advance a little bit more, and maybe you're a teenager and you missed your curfew. Or you're driving along going 10 over, and you see the lights in the rearview mirror. It's that clench in the gut 
It's that tingle in the body. It's the, and you know something consequential is about to happen to you. That's what we're going to call a fear not today. Now, what in the world does this have to do with Ezekiel? In our chapters today, we're going to encounter the Israelites who have been exiled to Babylon, and they are in a bad way. They are, I'm, I often teach uh, passages. It just seems that I get the ones where people are sinning, sinning, sinning. We're going to choose not to look too deeply into that. Okay, so they are in a terrible sin cycle. And it's building and building and building. And God is mad. So I just want to prepare you. We're not going to encounter a happy God. We're going to encounter a very angry God. And what we're going to do is try to relate to that in our own lives, where we are living in a phase, a season, a cycle of choices of sin, that even in the face of an angry God, we find ourselves saying, fear not. I'm in a fear not. I'm in that seize and that clutch because I am more afraid of the consequences that God is going to serve up to me than I am interested in the restoration and redemption of entering into those consequences so that I can come back into intimacy with God. See, choosing our sin removes us from the intimacy of God. It does not remove us from his love. It does not remove us from the possibility of salvation. But we're removed from the intimacy with him because he is holy and he will not live in the presence of our sin. But refusing the consequences keeps us there. It keeps us there. And we're bound. And we're away from him. And that will not solve our fear knot. So today what we're going to do is untie those knots. We're going to confront some of the fears that we have that are misapprehensions, misunderstandings about the identity of God. And then hopefully in doing so, we'll be able to say, God, I receive the consequences of my own choices because I know that they are for my good and for your glory. And I want to come back into your presence, into your intimacy. I miss you, God. And many chapters down the road, we're going to find out, just as God does in our lives, he does with the Israelites. He is angry and he bestows consequence, but it's to bring them back to a holy purpose. And I know I want that in my life. Do you? Do you? Every person should be saying yes. Every person should be saying yes. So we're going to do this together, okay? So good morning again. Good morning to online. We're glad you're here. Come with me right now. We have so much to do. We're going to be looking at this question. How do we untie the fear knots of God's judgment to find relationship restoration? Okay, let's start in Ezekiel 4.1. And now, son of man, take a large clay brick and set it down in front of you. And then draw a map of the city of Jerusalem on it. Show the city under siege. Build a wall around it so no one can escape. Set up the enemy camp and surround the city with siege ramps and battering rams. And then take an iron griddle and place it between you and the city. 
and then turn the city and demonstrate how harsh the siege will be against Jerusalem. This will be a warning to the people of Israel. I'm in verse 4. Now lie on your left side and place the sins of Israel on yourself. You are to bear their sins for the number of days you lie there on your side. I am requiring you to bear Israel's sins for 390 days. How many days are in a year? So more than that. More than a year. One day for each year of their sin. And after that, turn over and lie on your right side for 40 days. One day for each year of Judah's sin. Now go and get some wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and emmer wheat, and mix them together in a storage jar. Use them to make bread for yourself during the 390 days you will be lying on your side. And then the Lord said, this is how Israel will eat defiled bread in the Gentile lands to which I will banish them. And then he told me, son of man, I will make food very scarce in Jerusalem. It will be weighed out with great care and eaten fearfully. The water will be rationed out drop by drop and the people will drink it with dismay. Lacking food and water, people will look at one another in terror and they will waste away under their punishment. What? Huh? What's happening? Let's go back. If you've heard me teach enough, you know that I always start with what is the context? So here we are with the Israelites. Again, as I said in the intro, they've been exiled to Babylon. They're living in a sin cycle. And this has been building for the first three chapters. And now here comes Ezekiel with this prophecy that has no words. That's peculiar. That's something that's unique about Ezekiel. When you have, say, Jeremiah, he says, and God says to the people, we all know that phrase, but this isn't what's happening. This is interesting. Instead, we're saying you're going to lay down and you're going to build this little uh, mock-up. And most theologians and historians agree that Ezekiel actually did this, that this was not metaphoric. It was realistic. So he's delivering the prophecy not through words, but by the action that God has asked him to do. This is foreshadowing the siege of Jerusalem. And the people are receiving this prophecy by basically, as theologians believe, walking by Ezekiel while he's doing this. And they're looking and they're like, what, what's this guy doing? What's this about? And this is the channel of communication through which God chooses to speak to his people. So far, this sounds not that bad. I mean, you got terror and you've got limited food, and you've got, I mean, this isn't great. But as we're going to see as this proceeds, it's going to get significantly worse. Fear not, number one. God's wrath will be vicious and cruel towards me. God's wrath will be vicious and cruel towards me. It's interesting how we start by saying immediately when we sin, that God is coming for me with fire and brimstone and hell and damnation and wrath, and he's cruel and he's mean. From where do we get that notion? Because let's look at the scripture and see, how do we untie this? God's judgment is controlled, and it is purposeful. In the spectrum of the sin cycle, we're over here. We're earlier on. And God says, here's the number of days that I know that you've been sinning. 
And so I want you to know that I know that, and I want you to see how that bears out, what that looks like to me. It's measured. It's equal. It has balance. And so far, the choices haven't escalated. Biggest advice that I give myself, that I give my children, I will give you. Nip sin in the bud. Nip it in the bud. Most sin, you know, now I'm deep into my 40s, and I hope that I have a long way to go. But you know, you get to midway through the dance, and John and Sandy, don't you, as we get older, don't you get a lot of wisdom that we lacked in our 20s, as even in our 30s? And we start saying to ourselves, oh, I see God. I see some of those patterns. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And here's one that I learned. Most sin becomes a cycle, but it doesn't start big. It starts small. And God's response is proportionate. He tries to check us early. Yes, it does offend him, but he's merciful. But we bypass God so often. And instead, I think what we do is we look at the way we respond to one another as human beings and we make God human. We are afraid of how we respond one another in anger and hurt and we come at each other, especially in our current culture, and we cancel, and we're, we have road rage, and we attack. We come out guns blazing instead of simply saying, oh, that was a little bit offensive. Could you be a little more gentle there? Or even asking, did you intend to say that that way? Did you intend to do it that way? We should all be a little more like Andrea, the love of my heart. She's so gentle and compassionate in spirit. By the way, that's a biblical instruction to be that. And so we do that to one another and then we transfer that to God and we think God is also going to be wrathful. He's going to be vengeful. But you know what? God is not man that he would behave like us. And so we tie ourselves in the knot afraid of him instead of nipping our sin in the bud and going right into his space and saying, God, I know that you are controlled and purposeful and measured out for my good. Help me now. But what happens if we don't do that? Ezekiel 5. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Now I've done you the courtesy of bolding some things, and we're going to pay attention to that in just a second. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is an illustration of what will happen to Jerusalem. I placed her at the center of the nations, but she has rebelled against my regulations, my decrees, and has been even more wicked, wicked than the surrounding nations. She has refused to obey the regulations and decrees I gave her to follow. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You people have behaved worse than your neighbors and have refused to obey my decrees and regulations. You have not even lived up to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, I myself, the sovereign Lord, am now your enemy. I will punish you publicly. While all the nations watch. Do you see the escalation? The sin escalated. God's measured response is escalating. Because of your detestable idols, I will punish you like I have never punished anyone before or ever will again. Parents will eat their own children and children will eat their parents. I will punish you and scatter to the winds the few who survive. Yes, we've definitely escalated. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I will cut you off completely. 
I will show you no pity at all because you have defiled my temple with your vile images and detestable sins. A third of your people will die in the city from disease and famine. A third of them will be slaughtered by the enemy outside the city walls. And I will scatter a third to the winds, chasing them with my sword. And then at last my anger will be spent and I will be satisfied. And when my fury against them has subsided, all Israel will know that I, the Lord, have spoken to them in my jealous anger. Go back to verse 1, chapter 5. This is what the, what does it say? Sovereign Lord. Verse 7, therefore this is what the sovereign Lord. Verse 8, therefore I myself the Sovereign Lord. Are you seeing the pattern? When God speaks to us in patterns, we should pay attention. Look at how he's identifying himself. Sovereign Lord. If you study the Bible, God has many names that he chooses to identify and express his integrity, his character, his identity. This is the one he picks. The Sovereign Lord. What does sovereign mean? One who possesses the supreme Highest possible power. Ain't nobody bigger than God. There's nobody more powerful. There's no, we just sang it. You have no rival, you have no equal. Supreme power. Why pick that? Because his people have forgotten who he is. You ever forget who God is? He says, you have not even lived up to the standards of the nations around you. How exactly have they not done that? Well, look at where he's placed them. He says, I've placed you in the center. That's a place of importance, of intimacy, and of value. And he's asked them to live this way. Why? Because you are my chosen, sanctified people. But then he says, look at you. You are not even rising up to the standards of the sinful nations around you. They're even behaving better than my chosen people. That's how low you've sunk. Specifically, he cites two key words, rebelled and refused. What's that mean? What's that mean, God? To rebel is to resist the power over you. Oh, that's interesting. To rebel is to resist the power over you. And sovereign means that God is what? The most powerful. So what's the power they're resisting? God. They're not yielding to God. And they're refusing. What is to refuse? It's an indicate, uh, to indicate an unwillingness to accept what is offered. Now I'm going to give you a couple more words. Because it says here, she has refused. She his people, have refused to obey the regulations and decrees. What are those? What's a regulation and a decree? A decree. This is absolutely fascinating to me in my study. A decree is a judgment, ruling, or decision by God. I love a decisive God. I love that God is making decisions on our behalf. It reveals his purpose, plan, character and identity. Let me boil that down. A regulation or a decree shows who God is. It shows who he is. A law, which is also a regulation. It's a command of conduct and behavior God gives us to live as holy. So a decree says, I am God. 
And a law says, and you will live this way because of that. Are you with me? So how have they refused? They've refused to live according to who he says he is and yield to a lifestyle of conduct based on that. Or they're doing what they want, when they want, how they want it. Does that sound familiar? It's very much our cultural banner right now. And in verse 11, it says, you've defiled my temple with your vile and detestable idols. Other translations say, you have defiled my sanctuary. And that fascinated me. Because we can see a temple, right? It's four walls. It has a ceiling. It's a place. This is like a temple. But what do we mean when we say a sanctuary? I did a little study. Turns out, sanctuary is to worship while living in unrepentant sin in front of God. To worship. So you're throwing up your hands to him while living in that sin cycle by rebelling and refusing. If you're curious about the sanctuary, he's the sanctuary. And our sin is how we defile it. It's a way to boil it down, isn't it? The hardest lesson, this is peculiar to say, but we might all have different ones. I have been walking with the Lord now for 28 years, and I have learned one single lesson that has informed all my other lessons. God does not exist for me. Now, that seems obvious. But then life is hard, and you feel that God is beating you down. Like he's just kicking you when you're already down. I can't catch a break. I'm struggling. And we look for comfort. And we look for safety. And we look for nourishment. And we don't look for God. We don't look to the one person who can give all of that to us. And instead we start looking at him and we say, why are you so hard? Why are you so mean? You know, one lie that has perpetuated particularly church culture is that God wants you to be happy. It's a sickness. That's a bold statement for me to make. God does not want you to be happy. That is not his primary goal. He wants you to be holy. And when you walk in holiness, you will find joy. And joy is from the Holy Spirit deep within. Happiness, we're chasing the wrong thing. That's just a temporal experience. It comes and it goes, but God stays forever. No, God does not want you to walk around wearing sackcloth and weeping forever and ever. But what has happened is we've decided that, God, you exist to make me happy. You owe me good things. You need to deliver happiness to me in the form of whatever it is we fill in the blank and say that we deserve. And The reason I think that lie is so successful is because there's just enough truth. Isn't Satan clever that way? The best lies have a little bit of truth, don't they? In the sense that God wants relationship with you and he wants you to have joy. The Bible says he wants you to have life and life to the full. But he doesn't exist solely for you to get to be happy. And that's the taint of the lie. Fear not, number two. 
I can only worship God as I need him to be and not as he actually is. How to untie it, a sovereign God is the only God we worship. He says, I am your sovereign God, me, I, 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 I. That whole passage is sovereign God and I. So he exists not to give us happiness. We exist to live for him. And we have forgotten where in the position we exist. And so we become afraid of these parts of God we don't prefer. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't think I like a God who would discipline me. I don't like that. That's uncomfortable. But that's who he is. He says in this passage, he has jealous anger. He loves you so much, he's jealous for you. He doesn't want to share you with lies and deception and falsities. Look at Ezekiel 5, starting in verse 14. So I will turn you into a ruin, a mockery in the eyes of the surrounding nations and to all who pass by. You will become an object of mockery and taunting and horror. You will be a warning to all the nations around you. They will see what happens when the Lord punishes a nation in anger and rebukes it, says the Lord. I will shower you with the deadly arrows of famine to destroy you. This famine will become more and more severe until every crumb of food is gone. And along with the famine, wild animals will attack you and rob you of your children. Disease and war will stalk your land, and I will bring the sword of the enemy against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. This is who I am. You cannot live in a perpetually increasing cycle of sin and think that I'm going to stand by and watch you do it without any consequence. It simply cannot be. Ezekiel 6, again a message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, turn and face the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. Proclaim this message from the sovereign Lord against the mountains of Israel. This is what the, here it is again, sovereign Lord says to the mountains and the hills and to the ravines and to the valleys, I am about to bring war upon you and I will smash your pagan shrines. All your altars will be demolished and your places of worship will be destroyed. I will kill your people in front of your idols. I will lay your corpses in front of your idols and scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you live, there will be desolation and I will destroy your pagan shrines. Your altars will be demolished, your idols will be smashed, your places of worship will be torn down, and all the religious objects, objects you have made will be destroyed. The place will be littered with corpses, and you will know that I alone am the Lord, but I will let a few of my people escape destruction, and they will be scattered among the nations of the world. And when they, then they are exiled among the nations, they will remember me. They will recognize how hurt. I pause, I think about how our sin hurts God, hurts him. They will recognize how hurt I am by their unfaithful hearts and their lustful eyes that long for their idols. And then at last, they will hate themselves for all their detestable sins. At last, they will know that I alone am the Lord and that I was serious when I said I would bring this calamity on them. What's with all the mountain talk? 
Here in this context, we see the, the, rep, the repetition of the word idols over and over and over again. And I think of the many, many, many ways we can sin against God. But he makes it very clear here that idolatry is no joke. The first commandment says what? I am the Lord. Who's God? Your God. You will have no other gods before me. First commandment he gives. Because the truth is, two through ten, if you don't get one down, you are much more likely to do two through ten. Because you haven't recognized your position, that you exist for God. I mean, what more do you want from him? He made the heavens. He made the earth. He gave you companionship. He gave you purpose. He gave you plan. The worship song, it's your breath in my lungs. He breathed life into you. And then when you needed it at exactly the right time, he sent his only begotten son to suffer and die for you. But you aren't faithful. If you put it in that context, do we not understand a little bit better and maybe as best we can the pain of God? You've hurt me because you're not loyal and faithful to me. The mountains were the place where they went to worship their idols. They built their shrines. They built their little tabernacles. They built their um, uh, gold statues. And they would retreat there away from the temple, notice. It's funny how we go away from God to sin. And then we say, well, I didn't know that was a sin. The fact that you exited God's presence is usually a sign that you're going somewhere deep, that you don't want to go. And they would go and they would worship there. And that's why God is talking so much about the mountains. Idols give us comfort and they give us pleasure. And you might say, well, I don't have like a little gold statue on a little table in a little corner of a room in my house. That's silly. Do you metaphorically have one instead of literally having one? Where do you go to find your comfort and your peace and your encouragement and your purpose? What's the first thing you think of when you wake up in the morning? What's the last thing you think about when you go to bed? And what occupies your thoughts the most all the way through the rest of the day? When you say, I want to feel something good, where do you go? That's your idol. Doesn't have to be a little gold statue, see? Yes, the Bible is literal, but it's more than that too. And what happens with idols that are in our lives that aren't tangible, they become elusive. They're, they're so a part of us, like a little invisible friend, we forget that they're there. And we forget that they're there, so we forget to call them idols. And then we worship them. And there's one in particular, a few in particular, in fact, that we're about to talk about. But one that I want to start with is the uh, idol of fear itself. We live in a culture, and we're afraid all the time. And for me, if you said, what is your biggest fear that you fight against on a daily basis? 
You're getting all kinds of personal Candace today, very outside my norm. And it's this, that something would happen to my children. Does any other, anybody else relate to that? Yeah. And if I'm not careful, that fear will become my idol. Because here's the cold, hard truth, guys. Your children don't belong to you. They don't belong to you. They belong to God. And you have this incredible privilege. They're on loan to you. But the minute you start, I will say I. The minute I start circling my arm around them, creating a barrier between them and God, and I say, oh, 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 I don't know about that, God. I don't know if you can protect them. I don't know if you can nurture them. I don't know if you can sustain them. I don't know if I want you to take them. Now I'm in trouble. So idols don't have to be the little Buddha in the back room. They can be whatever you say to God is above him. And I would caution you, get rid of it. Get rid of that fear. Fear not, number three, is that God will not let me worship fear. He won't let me worship fear above him. He won't let me live in a sustained emotional place where I've decided that fear is so overwhelming, it's going to consume me. Because fear is human. But to untie it, you have to realize it can be an idol nonetheless. You can worship fear. I'm afraid all the time, God. I'm afraid that this isn't going to work out or that this won't happen or that this will be removed from here. And you might say, okay, but are you telling me, Candace, that fear is sinful? Being afraid is an emotion. That is not a sin. That's human. But when we turn that everyday emotion into an obsessive, compulsive focus of our attention, we stop being cautious and we start being fearful. My dad used to always say, girl, that's how he would start. That was so funny. Just this morning, John was praying for me and he has a specific something that he says and it just blesses my heart. And it involves the word girl and that brought to mind my father. And he would always start his instruction with girl, and he would say, God is good, but never dance in a tiny boat. What? But think about it, right? You can say, God, I trust you completely. But if you're in a tiny boat out on the ocean, don't get up and start doing a jig. What are you, what's going to happen? The boat's going to break. You're going to fall out of the boat. You could jump. That's cautious. Cautious is proceeding with wisdom applied to a situation. But fear is an overtaking of controlled outcomes. You don't have control. And so then you become fearful and tied in a knot and you worry yourself and you say, I don't know God. I don't know God. And now it's an idol. Here's a tighter distinction in Ezekiel 7. Uh, I'm sorry, in verse 13. Let's come at it from another angle. They will know that I am the Lord when their dead lie scattered among their idols and altars on every hill. I will crush them and make their cities desolate from the wilderness in the south to Riblah in the north, and they will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 10. The day of judgment is here. He's confronting these idols. Your destruction awaits. The people's wickedness and pride have blossomed to full flower. Their violence has grown into a rod that will beat them for their wickedness. None of these proud and wicked people will survive. All of their wealth and prestige will be swept away. Yes, the time has come. Buyers should not rejoice over bargains. I really want to focus here. 
Buyers should not rejoice over bargains, nor sellers grieve over losses, for all of them will fall under my terrible anger. Even if the merchants survive, they will never return to their business. For what God has said applies to everyone. It will not be changed. Not one person whose life is twisted by sin will ever recover. Verse 19, they will throw their money in the streets, tossing it out like worthless trash. Their silver and gold won't save them on that day of the Lord's anger. It won't save them. It will neither satisfy nor feed them, for their greed can only trip them up. They were proud of their beautiful jewelry and used it to make detestable idols and vile images, and therefore I will make all of their wealth disgusting to them. I will give it as plunder to foreigners, to the most wicked of nations, and they will defile it. I will turn my eyes from them as these robbers invade and defile my treasured land. How do we untie our fear knot? Fear knot number four is that God will take away the material wealth I've earned. So you might be sitting there and go, I don't really, the fear as an idol is not my thing. Well, you've got something. And maybe it's this. God's gonna take away all the material wealth I've earned. Notice, I've earned. Not that God in his mercy and graciousness has afforded you. How do you untie it? Only Jesus saves. Only the Holy Spirit can comfort you. He says right here, their silver and gold won't save them. It will neither satisfy nor feed them. When you want comfort and satisfaction, you have to turn to God and God alone. It can't be to the TV or the car or the live stream, or the Apple Watch. It's fun to buy things, change things up. Again, it's all about balance and measure. But when you say, I want to feel like I'm alive, God, I'm going to go buy an Apple Watch. See? Nope. It will fail you in the end. It's funny the thing about materialism materialism and the fear of it isn't really about the stuff. It's about the fear. It's always about the fear. It's like a shell game. You know what I mean by the shell game? You've got the, the trickster in the streets, the confidence man with a little cardboard box, and he's got the three shells, and the bead is under one shell, and they shuffle, and they move, and they shuffle. The devil is just distracting you by the stuff. That's the shells. He's just moving around. You know, so here's your new TV or here's your new stereo system or here's your new, whatever the case is. And you're, you're looking and you're like, oh, those are such good things. But what you're not paying attention to is what's underneath the shell. And that's the solution that only God can provide. Materialism distracts us and we begin to worship it. And then we become afraid that God will take it away. But if God takes it away to get your attention so that you'll worship him, you are better off than you were when you were rich. Ezekiel 7, chapter 23, I'm sorry, verse 23, prepare chains for my people, for the land is bloodied by terrible crimes. Jerusalem is filled with violence. I will bring the most ruthless of nations to occupy their homes. I will break down their proud fortresses and defile their sanctuaries Terror and trembling will overcome my people. They will look for peace, but not find it. Calamity will follow calamity, and rumor will follow rumor, and they will look in vain 
for a vision from the prophets. They will receive no teaching from the priests and no counsel from the leaders. The king and the prince will stand helpless, weeping in despair, and the people's hands will tremble with fear. I will bring on them the evil they have done to others, and they will receive the punishment they so richly deserve, and then they will know that I am the Lord. Here's your last fear not. God will never satisfy me the way my community does. God will never satisfy me the way my community does. That's a tough one to untie. The untie is that people may give you what you want, but God most certainly gives you what you need. Here's the trick about people. We are designed to need one another. We are designed to love one another. We are designed to be in relationship with one another. We are designed to be the hands and feet of God. We are designed to be light bearers and conquerors, and we could go on and on. God is about people. But just like any other fear, when it becomes imbalanced, what happens is we say, I will run to people to fill me. And so you begin to obsess about what everybody thinks about you. Or if you're like me, my personality type is very compartmentalized. I don't tend to care much about people's opinion of me. But then the way that I can go astray is that I don't value people enough. So whether it's too much or not enough, we are all struggling. Ain't that the truth? And we replace our worship of God with our worship of community. And we say, I have to be with people. The people, my people is where it's at. My love of my friends and my family is where it's at. And God, if you took my friends from me, I don't know. I don't know if I could worship you. If you took my family from me, well, I would just be adrift. Yes, that would be a, a grievous experience, but it does not replace God. And that is how people become an idol. We fixate. And we desire and we want. And we get tied into these fear knots. And what we need to understand is that if we can untie them, we will fear not, N-O-T. We will stop being afraid of saying, God, I see these ways in my life where I have allowed an idol in otherness I'm bobbing and weaving your consequences. I'm trying to get away from you. You can't escape God. He's a, he's a pursuing God, an ever-present God. And we get into these mindsets, and what happens is that God is here in our midst. And we say, I love you, God. You're excellent, God. You're an amazing God. You're perfect. You're holy, and I crave you. Except. And that should be where you stop your sentence. But we say, except I want this, and I want that, and you owe me this, and I desire this. And is that really a rule, God? We cannot negotiate with God. You shouldn't want to. There's a great deal of faith that is about trusting that God is for you, even when it doesn't feel good to you.
Fear knots can remove us, but untying them says, I'm going to go back into this space with God. I'm going to worship him again. I'm going to say, you know what, God? I'm going to take my lickings. I'm going to take my lickings. I'm going to observe that that is a measured consequence, God, and I want to come back. And here's the best part of the sermon. He says, let's go. Come on back. I'm ready. I'm ready. Are you ready? Let's go. Because that is the gift of your salvation. That is a gift of forgiveness from God. That is a gift of God's mercy. And it is one that we should not waste. It's the most extravagant waste. Let's untie some fear knots. Let's not get to this place with God. Let's nip it in the bud and say, God, I'm ready. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Vanguard Central Podcast. We encourage you to go out and live your faith in real relationship with Jesus and with others. God bless you, friend. See you next time.